I am Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are back in Rhode Island. We are back in Rhode Island. We talked a little bit about some of the fun things about Rhode Island last week. Like coffee milk. Like coffee milk. Uh, I have some more fun facts about Rhode Island, apparently. Okay. The state appetizer, which I didn't know was a thing, but I want to know more now. In Rhode Island, the state appetizer is calamari. Oh, okay. I love myself some good calamari. The fried one isn't that bad. I would not have it any other way. So yeah. Other way. Yeah, ugh. it's rubbery, if not, Mm-mm. and it's gross. Nope. The state flower is a violet, which is very lovely. That is very nice. Mm-hmm. What else about Rhode Island? State fruit. Rhode Island, what's that say? Greening apple? Yeah, greening apple. I'm not sure. I what don't that know is. what that is either. Rhode Islanders, let us know what a greening apple is because I would love to know. I like apples. I like apples too. Yeah, and the color green. Yeah. So. Cool. There's a lot of uh, schools in Rhode Island, apparently. There's a lot, yes. Brown? Brown, RISD. I know RISD. Providence College. Yeah. University of Rhode Island, which I feel like every time I go to Rhode Island, I see tons of signs. Signs, yeah. Tourist attractions, popular, of course, Block Island. Uh, yep, I've been there. Have you? Me too, yeah. That's yeah. one of the few places I've been to in Rhode Island. Well, it kind of sucks because, like, there isn't a hospital on the island. There's oh, no wow. hospital on Block Island. So if you need... Medical. Yeah, and I don't think there's a place for, like, a helicopter really to land either. So you're stuck taking that ferry. Oh, dang. That's dangerous. Yeah. And there's times when the ferry doesn't run, too, so you're just screwed. Have you ever been to the Newport Cliff Walk? Oh, uh, the, the Cliff Walks. Yeah, that's in uh, Newport, yeah. Yeah, is that pretty? Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, there's a ton of mansions. Oh, really? Yeah, like, there's all the mansions, like, across there. Um, beautiful views of the ocean. I would love to go there. That sounds cool. Oh, it's great. And, uh... Yeah, that's exciting. Let's see what else is on this list that you pulled up. Beaver Tail Lighthouse. I just like the name. Beaver Tail. I like that too. I mean, there's a lot of beautiful mansions in Newport. The International Tennis Hall of Fame. Oh, I don't know about that. Huh. Oh, and that's in Newport too. Yeah, I have no <laughs> idea. I'm trying to think of some of the mansions. Well, Belcourt Castle, which I mentioned in our interview with uh, with E. Massey. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's also Marble House, which mm-hmm. is really nice. Like... Everything is fucking marble, and it cost a ton of money to make. Wow. There's other ones that I can't think of, too, that were also really nice. Rose, Rosecliff? I may have seen that one. I may have not. I'm going to click on this link on my web browser for Marble House because I'm super intrigued. Oh. It's gorgeous. Yep. Wow. Y'all, Google Marble House Rhode Island. Marble House is amazing. Super cool. They have a pagoda? They have a pagoda out back. Yep, I was just about to say that. That is, like, decadent. It is really cool. And that door, like, look at that. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, I love stately old homes. Me too. And there's a ton in Newport, so go there if you can. Well, my story, which is the true crime story for today, doesn't quite take place in Newport. It takes place in... Middletown? Warwick. Warwick. Okay. Close enough. Which is, yeah, pretty close to, well, everything in Rhode Island. Trying to think of where we boarded the ferry over to Block Island, I want to say it was Warwick, but I'm not sure. I know we saw signs for Warwick, but everything in Rhode Island is so close to yeah. each other because it's a small state. Well, that's the thing. When I was looking at, like, I want to know more about Warwick, Rhode Island, and it was like, oh, it's the second largest city in Rhode yep. Island. It's on Narragansett Bay, which a lot of things are. Mm-hmm. And it's only 12 miles south of Providence. Yep. And almost like when you look at a map, it almost looks like a suburb. Yeah. But it's actually its own city. And I guess it's also very close to Boston. It's only like 60-some-odd miles it's south not- Westish yeah. of Boston. That's where my story takes place today. I'm going to dive right in. Are you Please ready? do. I am. Buckle up. Let me so. get my snorkel on. <laughs> we'll die. Keep your flippers in the trunk until we get to the beach. 
So it begins Labor Day weekend, 1990. Adam Emery, a handsome 27-year-old junior executive. He was handsome. Yes. You saw a picture. I, I showed you a picture, picture earlier. He was a very handsome man. Uh, and his wife, Elena, who was an accountant, were enjoying their Elena's Friday evening. my, my uh, baby cousin's name. It's a pretty name. Yeah. They were enjoying their Friday evening with Elena's sister and brother-in-law. It was sort of an impromptu celebration of their two-year wedding anniversary. They had decided to stop at Rocky Point Park, which is, it was an amusement park in Warwick. It's now defunct. Okay. But think of, you know, maybe like a any beach town in Jersey, Coney Island sort of amusement park. Gotcha. They stop at a local seafood stand, grab some, maybe calamari, who knows, but some fried seafood and hop into back into Adam's 1985 Thunderbird. Ooh, nice. Like, yeah, one of his pride and joy possessions. And as they're sitting there enjoying their Friday evening, snacking on some delicious fried seafood, another car suddenly sideswipes Adam's flawless, Uh-oh. mind you, black 85 T-Bird. They're kind of like, whoa, what, 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 what? And Elena thinks that she sees the vehicle up the road turning a corner. So Adam is just completely furious because he loves this car and somebody just sideswiped yeah. and took off and didn't stop. So he turns the car on and speeds off after the other car that he thinks hit him in pursuit. So for two miles, Adam follows this other car through the neighborhoods of Warwick. The older car that they're following is a maroon Ford LTE. You know, like those big square boat cars, yeah. very ubiquitous in like the 70s and early 80s. And they just keep chasing him. Finally, Adam's able to force the car over to the side of the road and stop the car. He exits the Firebird, but not before his wife Elena tells him to take the military knife that he kept in the dashboard glove box for protection. Okay. Just take it with you, never know. So as he approaches the Ford LTE, 20-year-old Jason Bass, who was driving, sees this screaming man approaching him and his cousin. And his cousin was this guy named, kid basically, named Josh Post. Post later described the scene he witnessed from the passenger seat. He said Adam, quote, got out of his car yelling and screaming that we're going to kick your butt. We're going to kill you. Major fighting words. Unbelievable that this guy was so mad. I've never seen anybody madder than this. Wow. So as Adam Emery reaches the car, he kind of grabs onto the car door. Jason Bass is like panicked because there's this like crazy, angry dude yelling at him for no reason. And he throws the car into reverse and tries to back away. At this point, Adam like hunkers onto the car door draws the military knife, and leans into the car and stabs Jason Bass in the chest. The blade pierces his heart and it kills him. Your story's just, like, starting right off, isn't yep, it? Okay. starting right off. So nearby residents who kind of saw what was happening, they thought maybe it was a car accident or something, they all come out and they see what has happened, that this kid's been stabbed in the chest. Yeah. They immediately call police. Jason Bass is unfortunately declared dead at the scene, and Adam Emery's arrested. So the police begin to process this scene thinking it's just an unfortunate incident of road rage. Well, they notice that the damage on Adam Emery's car doesn't match anything on Jason Bass's car. Bass's car had a broken taillight, and that was it. No, like, scrapings that you would expect to see on a car that had just sideswiped another car. Later, they analyzed paint samples from Jason's car, and the remnants that were left from the hit-and-run car's paint job on Emery's car, and it showed that the paint chips were not a match. So basically, Adam Emery had just chased down and murdered an innocent person. Great, that's fun. Yeah. 
So most people who knew Emery were stunned by the news. He was never really in trouble with the law. He was a pretty stand-up guy. He's a college graduate, junior executive at a company. Interviews with his family did portray him as somewhat of a narcissist, very like he liked nice things. He's very particular about his things. Yeah. And he worked hard to get nice things. So he enjoyed going out for dinner with his wife. He enjoyed nice clothes, kind of, you know, living your best life, basically. Yeah. So they were all surprised that this incident happened. The police charge Adam Emery with second-degree murder, and he's brought to trial in the fall of 1993. Emery claims that he stabbed Jason Bass in self-defense. He was afraid for his life because the car that Jason was driving was pulling away in reverse. He said in his testimony that the car actually dragged him for almost 1,000 feet before he was able to stab Jason. Um, That doesn't match the account of several other witnesses, however. I figured, but... Yeah. I I read several accounts of of just court testimony during my research, and all of them kind of said the weird same thing about Emery's testimony. They said he was very cold, very rigid, uh, and absolutely remorseless for his crime. Uh, I thought it was kind of odd because any normal person would, like, apologize for, you know, killing somebody that they were completely mistaken about, a completely innocent stranger. But not so much Adam Emery. The jury also wasn't swayed, so when the trial ended on November 10th, 1993, which also happened to be Adam's 31st birthday, he was convicted of second-degree murder. Now, what happens next is really what intrigued me about the story and why I wanted to share it with you, because I think you might find it interesting, too. The judge who is overseeing Embry's trial agrees to allow his bail to continue until sentencing. The idea was that... His bail, which had been basically, he put up his house and some two of his relatives' houses. There's three family oh, houses shit. on the line to, for his bail money. The he judge better stay where he's supposed to be. Exactly. The judge didn't think he was going to run or disappear. He would definitely show up for his sentencing period. But he wanted to give him some time to get his affairs in order. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people at the time were surprised by this, considering how serious Emery's crime was, this you know road rage turned murder incident. Yeah. But I guess it's nice to be an attractive straight white man. Probably, yeah. Hmm. Now, normally, you'd think, okay, that's the end of it. He's going to go to jail, case closed. But on the afternoon of November 10th, Adam and his wife, Elena, leave the courthouse and disappear. Great. Goodbye, three houses. (laughs) Goodbye, three houses. If I was his relatives, I'd be really, really mad. Yep, yep. Well, maybe not. Later that night... The police discover that Emery's abandoned car at the edge of the Clay Pell Bridge, a.k.a. the Newport Bridge. Okay. So this is the bridge that stretches across the East Passage of the Narragansett Bay that connects the city of Newport to Jamestown. Okay. It's that super long suspension bridge. It's actually the longest suspension bridge oh, in New yeah. England. Yep. Yeah. And it's really, really high above the Narragansett Bay. It's almost 215 feet or so when you're standing at the center I of the bridge. I don't like bridges. And yes, I, I remember that one. With, A little nerve-wracking. Uh, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> so that's where they find the Emery's abandoned car, right off this bridge. Of course. Inside the car, they find the clothes that Adam and Elena wore to court, their driver's licenses, the cut-up remains of their credit cards, and a receipt from a local sporting goods store. A few days later, in the mail, relatives receive letters from both Adam and Elena. Uh, one of them reads in part, quote, I'm at a total loss about what to do, what happened in court today. We're not afraid to die, and we look forward to it. Free at last. I write this letter with a clean, clear conscience. Huh. So the police are like, uh, did they jump off this bridge? Yeah, okay. 
I mean, obviously they didn't, but still, I can see where they're thinking. So the police do their due diligence, and they start searching for the Emery's to determine if it really was a double suicide or if the couple fled using their supposed suicide to cover their tracks. Yeah. So the police look into the receipt from the sporting goods store that they found in their car, and they discovered that the Emery's purchased black sweatshirts and sweatpants, athletic socks, and 80-pound wearable weights, like the kind you strap on. Yeah, I have like some of those. And stuff. Yeah. Now, the store manager does remember the couple being there, and he said, told the police, quote, Elena was far from nervous. She'd smile. She was talkative. It didn't seem that there was anything on her mind or she had anything planned. Well, a lot of people that actually do commit suicide, you would never see it coming because yes. they do present this false thing to the world where they're just like, yeah, I'm happy. Like, they're the ones that are always, like, telling jokes and doing all this stuff and, yeah. Yeah, true. But even weirder, though, is that, like, the sales guy who was working said that Adam actually haggled over the price of the socks and weights with him. Oh, yeah, so you figure... That doesn't some, sound like someone who's going to kill themselves. Yeah. Why they would just be so, like, whatever, I don't care. Exactly. They'd be like, all right, I'll bring me up. But he was like all concerned about like how much money it would cost. It doesn't seem very indicative of someone who's planning on ending their life anytime soon. Yeah. So next, the police discover reports that the Emery's actually stopped by a local Burger King where they calmly enjoyed a meal together. Aw. Mm. Nice, fancy, romantic dinner. Fancy, romantic dinner. Double whopper. And what year did you say this was? Uh, 93. So I believe that's still when Burger King had their own little ashtrays on the table. Mm-hmm, I stole mm-hmm. one of those back in the day. <laughs> I saw a picture of one of those on the internet, and it was like one of those, oh my god, I forgot. About, yeah. <laughs> it's like when you get smoking malls. It was yep. so weird. <laughs> so eyewitnesses also came forward to report the Emery's next move. They were actually spotted on the Claiborne Pelt Bridge around 5 p.m. on the evening they disappeared. Yeah. So shortly before, about two, two or three hours before the police discovered their vehicle. A detective who worked on the case remembered a brief but tense conversation that occurred between Adam and Elena in the courtroom shortly after the verdict was read. He actually had a video of the courtroom exchange, and he sent it to a lip-reading analyst. Ooh. Yeah. According to the analyst, Elena told Adam, quote, We will do what we originally said. You promised me. We should have done this before. You sure he didn't send it to like a like a psychic or a or a um, hypnotist? No, not a hypnotist. Because what I am loves their hypnotists apparently. It was interesting though because I found this reference about um, this detective who sent this video off in a couple different sources, and one of them was like it was somebody he knew who was hearing impaired who knew how to read lips. Okay. And like that's the person who analyzed the video, and that's what the that person could tell from the angle of the camera that that she had said. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. So kind of interesting. Like, all right, Rhode Pretty Island cool. yeah. doing that. Um, Rhode Island's been very big for non-conventional, non-conventional experts. Yeah. So the police began a search of the Narragansett Bay, trying to find the couple's body. It turned out to be one of the most extensive searches in Rhode Island's history. However, the authorities found nothing. So more than a year goes by, and then a fisherman who's working north of the Newport Bridge discovers a human skull in his nets. Uh-oh. So he turns it over to the police who have it analyzed, and forensics confirm that the skull is indeed Elena Emery's. To this day, however, no trace of Adam Emery's body has been found. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. In 2004, Adam was declared legally dead, but the case is still officially opened. He's still wanted by the FBI and the Rhode Island State Police, so the case is active and they're still seeking tips. So if you have any tips regarding the case, you can call... 1877RISolve. So that's why the card thing was open on your computer. Mm-hmm. 
it's an odd connection to your story from last week, Eden, where Ethan Emery also appears on that Rhode Island cold case card deck. Card deck, yeah. He's the Nine of Clubs. Oh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess the question is, what really happened to Adam and Elena? I, after all my research, I'm not really sure. Yeah, that's a weird one, because I would have thought that they would have faked their own deaths, gone, you know... Run away and done some sort of Bonnie and Clyde shit to right. for the rest of their lives. Right. Plus the fact that you told me that you were going to do some, like, bank robber story. Oh, no, I changed my mind. Okay. I changed my mind. So I thought maybe this was a lead-up to bank robbers. Nope. It's about a disappearing couple. Oh, okay. So... You went with the theme of Rhode Island, I guess. Then. I did, I did. Disappearances. Strange <laughs> disappearances in the tiniest state in the, in the land. I, in the course of my research, though, I kind of... It was interesting because there was, like, these two different distinct narratives happening depending on what source I was reading. Yeah. Um, and there's compelling evidence for each story, but not enough evidence to really sway me one way or another. So the first narrative is that Adam and Elena were this couple who were crazy in love, living their best life, enjoying fancy clothes and cars. They were good to their family and friends. Elena plays a bigger role in this narrative. It's said that she's the dominant one in the relationship and that she's a really passionate woman who, like, urged Adam to be more proactive in things, that she even urged him to chase down the hit-and-run driver. And with the knife. Rage. Yeah, with the knife she yeah. has and the knife makes him take it. After Adam's sentencing, when it comes out that Jason Bass was an innocent victim, she seems to blame herself for Jason's tragic death. One of the articles I read said that in the courtroom, somebody overheard her being like, this is all my fault. Saying something like mumbling that along those lines. So she clearly deeply loved her husband, but she couldn't bear to live without Adam, who would have been probably sentenced to 20 years or so in prison for second degree murder at the the minimum. And she realizes that their good names are completely tarnished by his conviction. And that got me thinking, and I did a little more research, and a lot of articles kind of pointed out that Rhode Island's a super small state. They can comb that shit in 20 minutes. Exactly. (laughs) And, like, people like the Emery's who were, like, born and bred there, like, they know everybody or most people in their local community. So it's the idea that, you know, while Adam would have gone to jail, everyone would have known about it. Mm -hmm. Everyone would have thought he was a murderer and, like, this, like, vicious, cold-blooded killer. And I did actually come across a couple articles that mentioned very public emotional interactions between Elena's family members and members of Jason Bass's family. Where, like, they would see each other in a store and they would start, like, a yelling match or, like, just kind of, like, yeah weird tension in the community. So I imagine that, like, that probably happened to Elena while Adam was at trial. Like, I'm sure she had weird social interactions, like, her husband's yeah. a murderer, like, people whispering. So I'm sure that's a lot of extra stress on top of the fact that, like, the love of your life is being sent away for 20-some-odd years. Yeah. Meanwhile, several people are saying how, you know... Adam is unremorseful about killing Jason Bass. He feels like he did nothing wrong. And this is how he felt up until it comes out that Jason wasn't the person that hit his car. He was initially offered a reduced sentence in exchange for a guilty plea to manslaughter, and he refused it because he didn't feel like he did anything wrong. Gotcha. Because he didn't know that Jason didn't hit his car. So he car. was Vanessa Lutz in... Um, freeway? In Freeway. I did nothing wrong. Sir, officer, I did nothing wrong. So when it is discovered that Jason wasn't the person who hit his car, I can imagine Adam kind of all of a sudden experiencing, like, the gravity of his crime on top of, like, his conviction, like, full full force, right? Yeah. So you mix Adam's guilt and remorse with Elena's own guilt and shame, and you have a pretty volatile mix that could probably lead to the couple's decision to take their own lives. Yeah. I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. It isn't, but the whole thing with them buying the stuff before, that kind of makes it... Seem like it's not suicide. Well, it's weird because it happened all in one day, right? It's like you get 
the court conviction. That afternoon they leave. They buy these like leg weights and these like it's like workout gear. They grab a burger as a last meal and they jump to their deaths. Yeah. It's very romantic. I mean, if I was gonna have a last meal, it'd be someplace a lot better than Burger King. I do enjoy myself some Burger King from now and then, but, but you know. Yeah, preach. Give me some filet mignon and some lobster. And exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna want some freaking crab bisque and some you know custard. Something good. Some, some dessert at least. Jesus. Yeah. Exactly. I don't think a milkshake's gonna cut it. Anyway. Nope. So that kind of leads me to the second narrative that I came across in my articles. And that basically says, yes, Adam and Elena were this couple who's crazy in love, living their best life, enjoying fancy clothes and cars. They're good to their friends and family, but they're also incredibly narcissistic and look down on people they consider low class or economically inferior. Okay. I can see that too. This was interesting because this was the article that talked a lot more about Jason Bass's family and how he he was uh, Native American or part Native American. And who's the victim, right? He was the victim, yeah. And by all accounts, he's a very, very nice guy. I read one account from his niece who said that he used to work at uh, Mr. Donuts, which is like, you know, yeah, I know those. New England loves their donut shops. Yep. And one time a homeless man came in and he didn't have, and it was wintertime, he didn't have a jacket. Jason gave him his jacket because he felt bad for this homeless guy. Yeah. And that he's. Like Jason's big dream in life was to eventually open his own restaurant, and he worked really hard for it, but his family was lower, lower middle class, and they couldn't really afford to help him out at all. So he was working his way up to try to achieve his dreams. Meanwhile, Adam and Elena's family were firmly middle class, even upper middle class. Okay. Like, they own, pro- they own lots of property. They were both college educated. They God, were if this was anywhere near collar. Newport, mm-hmm. it's an expensive area. Yep. Because like I said, we don't even stay in Newport when we go to Newport. We stay in Middletown because we need it to be a little less expensive. And Middletown still ain't cheap. Mm-hmm. So you have these people who own property like near Newport. So they're obviously pretty well off. Yeah. And there was a lot of like back and forth in articles where, you know, they keep going back to the idea that Adam Emery is this narcissist who just can't accept what he's done by killing Jason Bass. He doesn't think it's wrong. It's just somebody needed to pay. And that Elena herself was desperate to stay with Adam, again, because the idea of, like, you're married to a narcissist, you kind of become enthralled by them. Yeah. And that she either agrees to a suicide pact by jumping off the Newport Bridge or to faking their own suicides and going on the run. Okay. So I can imagine a plan where the couple decides to act on it, and as Elena jumps, Adam has a minute, uh, last-minute urge of self-preservation, being a narcissist, and doesn't jump. Okay. Or, more horrifically... He pushes Elena off the bridge and walks away. And that would really suck. I thought about that, too. I'm like, well, what if he's still alive? And he was just like, you got me into this mess. Fuck you. And, yeah. Right? So it's like these two different compelling narratives of what happened to the Emery's. And I, I can't decide. What, yeah. do you, what do you think's more compelling? I I really don't know how to, to take this one. Because I had a few things running through my head while you were saying the story. Of course, because I was expecting it to be the, the robbery story that you mm-hmm. were originally going to do. I imagined them being like... Let's fake our deaths, run away together, and then do a bunch of Bonnie and Clyde shit mm-hmm. and just live the rest of our lives as outlaws because it's hot. Yep. Um, that was my initial thought. But then after you telling me about this, I I get like either they both did kill themselves. Like maybe they were initially planning on faking their deaths mm-hmm. and running away, but then decided, shit, I don't think we can do this. This mm-hmm. is not a feasible plan. Let's just end it. At least we'll be together. Or then... Third option, he's just like, like I said, screw you, you ruined my life, this was your idea for me to go after them with a freaking knife, mm-hmm. boom, pushes her off the cliff, and then either realizes what he's done and kills himself later, or goes off, changes his name, changes his identity, just, you know, lives somewhere else. 
Yeah. Where no one can recognize him. Well, it's weird, too, because in the FBI flyer for his most wanted flyer, mm-hmm. it, like, mentions, like, possible sightings in Florida and Italy. And I'm like, that's really that's weird, weird and diverse. and Two places that have a place called Naples. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, I, I don't know where I stand on what happened to them, but I thought it was a very interesting story because it starts off and it's so, like, such a sad and unnecessary crime. Yeah. And then just compound that by this mystery of what happened to these crazy kids in love. I mean, I would have been pissed off, too, because if I had that car. Oh, yeah. 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 So that's my story for this week in Rhode Island. Yeah. It's a crime at its weirdest. I liked it and it like really started off with a bang because I was expecting like a little more lead in, a little something and then all of a sudden it was just like bam, nope, car was struck, now people are dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, thanks. Uh, I had some great resources for this episode. As I mentioned, I read a lot of articles. A lot of them came from WPRI Eyewitness News or WPRI.com which is the local eyewitness news station. I'm pretty sure that I used that as a source mm-hmm. for last week's the Washington Post had a fantastic article about it that talked a lot to the different family members, the Emery's family members, and also Jason Bass's family members. Uh, I used onlyinyourstate.com because there's so much random stuff on that website. I use a lot of stuff from them. Great. And then last but not least, I did watch an episode for this week's. Oh, nice. I never watch episodes, but I did for this week because it was Unsolved Mysteries, and I love myself some Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. So I enjoy the dulcet tones of Robert Stack telling me... Oh, of course. ...about what happened to the Emerys. But yeah. That was a really good show. I missed that show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't watch anything. Well, I watched a few YouTube videos this week for mine, but I didn't really... I couldn't find anything to watch. Mm-hmm. And last week, I really didn't watch anything because there was literally nothing. Hmm. But. Well, I'm excited to find out what your paranormal haunting story is going to be now. Oh, it's going to be fun. But first, we need to make a little pit stop and take a little break. All right, gang. We'll be back shortly. See you then. And we are back, everybody. Hey. Got some nice snacks in. Mm-hmm. Had a little pit stop. And now I'm ready for Eden's paranormal story. I hope you all are, too. I've got a good one this week. I think you'll like it. So our stop today for this week's paranormal story is going to be in Providence, which is the capital of Rhode Island, as we all know, mm-hmm. as well as being the third most populous city in New England. I didn't know that. Yep. Hmm. The name was given by Roger Williams, who founded the town in 1636 and was a Reformed Baptist, which is why the name sounds so religious, because mm-hmm. it was God's divine providence. So, mm. yeah. Uh, it's going to be kind of funny based on the story that I'm going to be telling you all today, so... You know, Providence is also home to my favorite Ivy League school, Brown, as well as RISD, or the Rhode Island School of Design. So it has some wonderful colleges there, as we talked about earlier in the episode. Uh, Without further ado, this is my story of the Biltmore Hotel. Ooh, a hotel. Yes, I do love my haunted hotels. So the Biltmore Hotel was built in 1922 by Whitney Warren and Charles D. Wetmore, who were a big name in architecture back then. They also designed Grand Central Terminal. Okay. Yeah, so they did a lot of good stuff. It was owned originally by the Bowman Biltmore Hotel chain. I don't know a lot about them, but you'll find like a Biltmore Hotel like everywhere. Mm-hmm. Because when I got lazy with my searches, I would just type in Biltmore Hotel murders or Biltmore Hotel hauntings. Uh-huh. And it would come up with different ones in different states. There's one oh, in California. No. <laughs> There's like, I think one in like Massachusetts or something too. And, yeah, so apparently they've all had murders and hauntings in them, Built too. Built more murder Yeah, right? So, 
don't stay at a Biltmore Hotel. Uh, <laughs> the moral of the story is. Yeah. So the building was also the second tallest in the city of Providence, surpassed only by the Rhode Island State House, hmm. and is now the ninth tallest building. Okay, that's still pretty impressive for like a building that was built in the 20s. Oh, absolutely. And being this was the 1920s, everything was done in an Art Deco style. And if American Horror Story has taught me anything, it's not to trust this type of hotel. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm like, I love Art Deco. I want to theme my wedding around Art Deco. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, you did. Uh, it may look cool and bring back thoughts of speakeasies and flappers, but chances are the building is going to be haunted as fuck and everyone's going to die there. So, yeah, you know. A strange yet fun feature to this hotel is that it was designed in a rather unique V-shape, which allowed for every guest to be having, like, an outside room. That's cool. Yeah. They originally built it with 600 rooms, which is massive. Yeah. Uh, But then they knocked some walls down and made suites, and now the building has only a measly 292 rooms. How will people survive? (laughs) Oh, my God. My suite is only three rooms deep. I know, right? Where am I supposed to store my caftans? (laughs) They also have, like, rooftop space for 750 people with great views of the city. Wow. And a banquet hall, which is huge, at 1,900 square feet. So this is, like, a, like very much a opulent 1920s, like, yeah. decadent-designed hotel. Their freaking um, banquet hall can almost fit my house in it twice over. What? Yeah. That's crazy. Because this house is about, like, 900 square feet. Okay. So it's not a big house, but still, that's impressive for one room to be that big. Upon opening, they decided to host a large banquet because this was supposed to be like a premier luxury hotel for socialites and such. And over a thousand people showed up for the event, most of them being high society. Wow. Well, they're so close to Newport, right? So it's like Newport, like the playground of the... The rich and the famous. Yeah, Yeah. the summer playground, right? Yeah, exactly. Because everyone who lived in New York that was all rich and fancy had summer homes in Rhode Island and Newport. Oh, so if you wanted to have like a little like quick stopover at a chic hotel, you just like head over to Providence. Yeah. One of the um, one of the, the places that I saw, I wouldn't really consider it a mansion. It was a nice house, but I wouldn't consider it, like, when you think mansion, you think, mm-hmm. like, marble house and stuff yeah. like that. This was a nice house, but it wasn't as amazing as that house was. But it was one of the Biltmore properties, like oh. like the Vanderbilts. Okay. Is what I was trying to say. Not Biltmore. Well, no. They have the Biltmore, you, When but, you first said Biltmore Hotel, I immediately thought about the Vanderbilts and, like, the yeah, Biltmore Mansion exactly, in, like, Asheville. Exactly, in Asheville. Yeah. But, yeah, the, the hotel has nothing to do with the Vanderbilts. Um, another notable thing about this building that really makes it stand out is the giant glowing neon sign atop that displays its name. Big red neon sign that just says, you know, Biltmore Hotel. I'll take straight out of the movies. Yeah, it's really nice. I like it. It's cool. So you might be wondering where they got all the money for this. Well, here's where it gets a bit creepy and why I said it was funny that the town was founded as a Christian settlement. The backer behind this building, according to a source, or several sources actually, was a man by the name of Johann Lysa Weisskopf. More German. Yep, more German. Who was a known Satanist. What? Yep. Other sources said that he was rumored to be a Satanist. Well, actually, it was just one of the sources that said that. But every other source seemed to suggest that, uh, or strongly state, that this was an established fact that Johann did not try to hide at all. So maybe it was like one of those like social rumors... That he's into some dark arts, and he's like, maybe, I don't know, possibly. I think it was pretty much, he's like, yeah. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's good. Exactly. That's good, yeah. 
Okay, that's the extent of my German. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, um, Johann funded the building's creation in 1918 because he wanted to bring the supposed joy and fun of Satanism to all. I mean, that's pretty online with most Satanists I know. Yeah, exactly. So, Johann seemed to have a lot to do with the construction of the hotel and had chicken coops installed on the roof of the buildings so there would be an endless supply of chickens used in ritual sacrifice... And he also had springs built in the underground part of the hotel for purification rituals. Um, oh, and there's also satanic altars down there as well. Uh, okay, that's a little. That's a little. That's a little more than I was expecting. Exactly. Um, I mean, I wonder if like this is gonna sound weird, but I wonder if they had like winter, winter chicken dinner, blue Bay specials. I don't know. I bet they did. All I know is that he's definitely not like a you know nice fancy Levain Satanist. He's the other kind. Ritual springs. I was like, wait, springs? And I immediately thought of a trapdoor. Then I realized you were talking about cleansing springs. And I was like, okay. See, when I heard about the springs, I immediately went back to Hager House from my story from Maryland. The deliciously crisp spring. Yes. That decided to be like, you know, cooling the house. They used it as like a refrigerator. It was perfect. This one was just used for... Cleaning the chicken blood off your feet. Pretty much. Uh, Some accounts of the springs in the underground say they were actually filled with human blood, too. So... (gasps) No. You don't know. That could just be a rumor, Mm -mm. but... That's just... I'm going to say it's fruit punch and leave it at that. Yeah. Tomato juice. Clamato juice. (laughs) What's that smell? Clamato juice. (laughs) The worst juice there is. Another crazy part of this, which is majorly verifiable, is the Bacante Lounge, or Bacante Dining Room, which featured waitresses called the Bacante Girls, who worked in nothing but a see-through skirt, making me think that the health inspectors would have had, like, a field day with this place. Oh, my. Uh, people would sit in what they called uh, banquets, uh, which were tables that could fit between two to eight people, and you could summon your picante girl by pressing a button on the table. The floor in this room was also glass with pink lights, and the walls were all mirrored, so you could see every angle of these ladies. Oh my god, this sounds... like I can't even imagine what this is like. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah, it said that the room was also used for orgies, which, given my previous statement, does not surprise me in yeah. the least. Yeah, I mean, it's a dining room. Yeah, what what are you dining on? The puss. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> hey, yeah, everyone else was thinking it, so. So there are actually a lot of notable people who dined and probably did a few other things with the girls in the Picante room, including Douglas Fairbanks. F. Scott Fitzgerald and his wife Zelda, and Louis Armstrong. Really? And I bet Louis did a lot more than play that trumpet in that room, if you catch my drift. hey Okay, so here's the weird thing. There's a huge difference between Satanism and Paganism. Satanism was made to be the anti-Christianity, whereas Pagan religions were around way, way, way before either of those religions. Bacante means a priest of Bacchus who is the Roman pagan god of wine, agriculture, and fertility, and is the Roman equivalent of Dionysus from Greek mythology. Okay. Uh, I suppose Bacchus's use in Satanism would be due to his wine and fertility association and meant to represent excess and imbibement and a strong sexual appetite. But seriously, why do Satanists need to use pagan deities? Like, followers of pagan faiths have a hard enough time trying to explain that they don't worship the devil... (laughs) nor do they even believe in him, without having to, you know, be directly associated with Satanism. Satanism. Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe it's a little bit of a uh, shorthand. 
Like, maybe they're a lazy Satanist. They're just like, yeah, it's the Bacchus. We have orgies and Bacchanalia. Mm, Bacchanalia time. The content girls, that's awesome, dude. Totally. Do it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Besides the links to Satanism, the hotel has a few other unsavory connections, such as being used as a speakeasy during Prohibition. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Rhode Island, and especially Providence, was very lax with Prohibition. Uh, there are lots of speakeasies all over the place. And with this place being so damn decadent, mm-hmm. it just makes sense for there to be a speakeasy in this one. And the police didn't seem to do much about it either, since the police and government officials could drink for free here. Oh. There's normally a 25-cent a glass rule. Not but for cops Not for uh... them. Nope. Mm-hmm. They got to do whatever they wanted. Uh, as we all know, what are speakeasies famous for other than booze? Mobsters. Fair. So, from its beginnings in the 20s up until probably 1933 when Prohibition ended, there was a lot of criminal activity going on here. In the early 1930s, famous mafia boss Raymond Patriarca uh, actually worked as a bellboy for the hotel after dropping out of school. That's like the name, uh, the, fa- the big fam- famous mob family, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. Patriarca mob family. Yeah. And they also had um, ties with uh, Cosa Nostra, which are a big mm-hmm. Sicilian mob family. Um Raymond would actually settle, like, disputes between the families, too, a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, remember what I just said about the police and government officials? Well, they did a lot more illegal things than just drink at the Biltmore. And between 1920 and 1933, police officers were implicated in about eight murders at the hotel. Uh, what? Yep. So, lots of murder going on. Wow. That's... Uh, That's a Borbach empire. Yeah. Oh, it's nuts. There's also a governor whom was responsible for a murder as well as raping at least six people, uh, a mayor who murdered someone, and a cardinal, thanks to Catholicism, who drowned an 11-year-old prostitute in a bathtub. First of all, 11-year-old prostitute kind of makes me think of Taxi Driver with Jodie Foster. (sighs) So much in that statement. Yeah. That's... Wow. Yep. Wow. That's like a lot of villainy and just general awfulness i honestly wouldn't be surprised if along with the oh what the hell was it called now it's called the stay on main in la oh oh um i know what you're talking about yeah it's like the inspiration for the hotel cortez exactly and that's what i was gonna say along with that i wouldn't be surprised if this hotel had some inspiration for american horror story as well because there's just so much going on here I actually tried to find out more information on these, but I came up empty-handed no matter how many times I changed my search phrases Mm -hmm. to find more about these murders and rapes and everything else. Um, Suicide is also a major theme of the hotel. The most famous one uh, being during the stock market crash of October 1929, a financial worker threw himself out of a window on the 14th floor of the Biltmore, quite obviously leading to his death, and that's just one of the suicides that I was able to find. Mm. Uh, people also tend to disappear from the hotel, and as recently as 2008, six people have disappeared in total, and the most recent I could find were a father and a daughter who are from New Jersey, disappearing sometime in the night during their stay. The At first I was like, I want to go to this hotel. Now I'm like, I want to visit this hotel, but yeah, not exactly. stay there. Yep. The family were just, they were staying there, um, apparently, and their four-year-old daughter couldn't sleep, so the father took her for a walk around the building. The mother was already asleep at this time, and when she woke up, they were just gone and they never returned. Ugh. No idea whatever happened to them. In 1938, there was a massive hurricane that just ravaged New York and all of New England. 
It goes by several names such as the Great Hurricane. It's the Great Hurricane, Charlie Brown. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, The 1938 New England Hurricane, the Long Island Express, and the Yankee Clipper. Okay. On September 9th, it formed off the African coast and became a Category 5 hurricane before touching down in Long Island as a Category 3 on September 21st, killing 682 people and destroying 57,000 homes. And it caused property damage of about $306 million back then, which would be about $4.7 billion today. Oh, my God. And it's still the most destructive hurricane in New England's history. Wow. Yeah. Well, this hurricane ended up causing a lot of damage and managed to flood the lobby of the Biltmore Hotel, but this was not the only hurricane to do that. Wait, wait, more hurricanes? It happened again with Hurricane Carol in 1954. Carol. Mm Mm-hmm. Damn it, Carol. (laughs) It flooded the building, and there was water pouring down, like, the elevator shafts and stuff. It got so bad. They actually have a plaque in the lobby now, really high up on one of the columns, showing how high the water had gotten. Maybe the floods were trying to wash away the Satanism. Wash away those sins. Exactly. On a cheerier note, this place really went all out for its entertainment. And when people performed in what is called the garden room, they turned the dance floor into an aquarium complete with live fish for Esther Williams, who was a professional swimmer and actress. Yeah, she did like the big Hollywood numbers, the synchronized swimming. Exactly, yep. They They turned it into an aquarium for her. With actual fish. That's amazing. They also froze the dance floor solid for a performance by Sonia Heaney, Henny, Henny. Uh, who was a Norwegian figure skater, according to golocalprop.com. Yeah, she's Olympiad. She, she also had a couple of movies, and so Sonia Henny. She was also an actress, too, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, they had some really cool stuff. Uh, you could also hear live orchestral sets from Benny Goodman and Jimmy Dorsey. So this is like... The place. This was a happening place. Yeah, this oh, is like yeah. the place in Providence where like you would go to see like just a mind blowing show. Exactly. Have a fantastic meal. Probably a few probably, hookers. Probably yeah, if you wanted if you wanted to like sample anything local. From the Bacante girls. Bacante. <laughs> if you wanted to have your bacchanalia, there you go. Oh, it's like a instead of a quinceanera, you have your bacchanalia. <laughs> bacchanalia, exactly. They probably hosted a few Saturnalias too. I mean, you know, everything. <laughs> So from 1974 then to 1979, the hotel was actually closed down due to it just being a rough time for the town of Providence in general. But the mayor, um, Buddy Cianci, he fought to make this place a landmark since there were plans of tearing the hotel down. This is when the hotel went through a large remodel and reopened in 1979 as the Biltmore Plaza Hotel. I feel like whenever Plaza is in the name of a hotel, it instantly means it's fancy. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I want to talk for a minute about Buddy Cianci. Okay. He was the mayor of Providence from 1975 to 1984, and then again from 1991 to 2002, making him the longest-running mayor for the city of Providence and one of the longest-serving mayors in U.S. history. Interesting. Yeah. He was also um, he also served as a prosecutor and an attorney. Okay, so he's very well entrenched in like the local political life of Providence, basically. Oh yeah, definitely. He also tried to run for mayor again in 2014, but he was defeated by Jorge. Elorza. He actually lived at the hotel in the 90s and moved in there again in the 2000s when a criminal trial started against him in 2001 for such crimes as conspiracy, racketeering, extortions, mail fraud, and witness tampering. Oh, so... Yeah, yeah, he was into some bad shit. (laughs) Uh, He kind of poked fun at his indictment, 
calling it Operation Plunderdome. Yeah. <laughs> the balls on that man. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> he was acquitted of 26 out of 27 of those crimes, though, and was only charged with the racketeering and served five years in federal prison, forcing him to resign as mayor in 2002. Wow. Yeah. That- his wife also spoke out against him after he died of colon cancer in 2016, saying that he was very controlling and abusive and would also have her followed even after the divorce. So. So he's kind of not a great guy. Mm-mm. But somehow he was like a great super... Great for the city? Yeah, I guess. So there we go. I mean, I guess people aren't all bad. Again, I will say Hitler loved dogs. So, um, <laughs> and he was a vegetarian, so yeah, there we Exactly, go. yeah. Hooray. Um, okay. Just to throw in a little fun fact about him, he also had a talk show for a while. What? Yeah, I didn't really get to research much of it because I was in a hurry, but... I hope that was just, like, local cable access. I don't know. I think it ran for a few years, though. Oh, man. Um, Another little fun fact about the hotel, one of the sources I used, which was the Brown Daily Herald, looked at the reviews on TripAdvisor, and the number of excellent reviews was 666. (gasps) (laughs) <laughs> you know who's so excited about that in his grave? Hmm. The guy who built the hotel. Probably. Mr. Johann. Oh, the guy who funded it, yeah. Least German name. Yeah. Johann said something. Kolp. Something had, yeah. Okay. The place had a lot of owners also, by the way. In 1947, it was purchased by the Sheridan chain and renamed the Sheridan Biltmore. But it was sold again in 1968, uh, going back to its original name. It was then bought by the Providence Journal in the 70s during its nightmare period of being (laughs) closed down. And they added an external glass elevator, which was pretty fancy. External glass elevator is like, I don't know. It's kind of weird. It's like a waterbed. Like, it's cool an idea, but in it's, practice, in, it's not so cool. Yeah, probably not. I remember wanting a waterbed so bad. They were so expensive and so heavy, though. I remember I knew a guy, and he had a waterbed. My cousin had one. Uh, and I was, like, 19. I was like, this is so cool. Yep. But then, like, he made it uncool for me by telling me all about the maintenance of his waterbed needed. And I was like, yep. anyway, I'm going to I'm gonna go home now. And God, if it springs Bye. a leak, so help you. You got to burp your bed? Yep. What? It's so weird. Yeah, waterbeds were not a good idea, but they were so cool in theory. <laughs> They changed the name several times because they were buying up other properties, and it was during this time that the hotel housed the largest Starbucks in New England. Really? Yep. After this, it was purchased by Grand Heritage Hotel in 1995 and renamed the Providence Biltmore. Then sold again in 2012 to Finnard Coventry Hotel Management, and finally in 2017, it was purchased by AJ Capital Partners, who renovated it again and now have named it the Graduate Providence. Okay. They changed the sign out front, but they decided to keep the neon sign on the roof, which I think is a good call since it just has become iconic at this point. So it's it's called the Graduate Providence Hotel now, but it still has the big Biltmore sign on the Correct. top. Correct. Okay. Uh, now it's time to dig into the real meat and potatoes of the story. Hauntings and crazy happenings galore. I'm so excited. First off, I want to mention uh, with the claims of Satanism in the hotel's early history, that they maintained that there weren't any hauntings until after the chicken coops, the altars, and the springs were torn down, and that Satanists saved the building from being haunted. (laughs) That's what the modern Satanists are trying to say. That Satanism saved the place, and because they stopped it, that that's why everything's haunted now. One of the most prevalent ghosts seen is the unnamed man who committed suicide by jumping out the window on the 14th floor during the stock market crash. 
He doesn't just hang out on the 14th floor though, but can be seen randomly throughout the hotel, and guests have also reported seeing him out their window plummeting past to the ground below. But then when they go out to check everything out, there's no weirdness on the street. I can't imagine that. Like, you're in your hotel room, and like, I don't know about you, but like, whenever I go into a hotel, it's like that thing you do. Like, you check it out, you like, look at the blinds, check out your view. Can you imagine just like seeing a body fly past the window? Just fly past, yeah. That's apparently, like, that's one of the most commonly seen things, too, is his body going past Mm -mm. your window. Mm -mm. Nope. Yeah, I don't want any of that either. What used to be the Picante dining room is also said to be very haunted, as guests tend to hear people partying, laughing, dancing, talking, and drinking in there when it's closed. Yeah, there's no one in there, and yet they hear lots of party noises. So it's still the 1920s somewhere. (laughs) Still the 1920s somewhere. Exactly. Which was like the decade of decadence, which also brought around the economic crash of the 30s. Well, yes. So let's go for it again. It's going to be 2020 soon, you know? We can bring back the roaring 20s. A lot of people report that they have trouble sleeping here, and one woman stated that when she tried to sleep, that she felt like a padding at the pillow, like a dog or cat, like stepping on it. Huh. And then whatever was doing the motion just jumped off the bed and ran into the bathroom. That's creepy. Yeah, really weird. Someone else said that they experienced um, our favorite thing in the world. The sensation of someone or something was pressing on your chest when you're trying <sighs> to sleep. Mm-mm. She also said that she felt the same pressure on her eyes before that and kept waking up because of it. Oh, gross. Yep. I watched two videos from a guy on YouTube. I didn't save the videos because they could be bullshit, so I'm not sure, um, like, who did them. But in the one, his bathroom door kept slamming shut on its own. And in the next one, his overhead lamp would sway on its own. Okay. But it wasn't like he ever kept, like, let's take the lamp for existence. It's not like he ever just kept the camera on the lamp and it started moving. Mm -hmm. He'd be like, well, this is my lamp and it's been swaying on its own. Then he would move the camera somewhere else, talk about it. It's like, look, it's doing it again. So it could have been hit the lamp and record. Same thing with the slamming door. You saw the door slam shut. And then he went in and he immediately went to the other side to check first, not behind the door right away, Mm -hmm. but to the other side. So someone would have had time then to get out of the way. Mm -hmm. So it seemed kind of fishy, but maybe it was real, maybe it wasn't. Who knows? Um, Disembodied giggling can be heard on the 16th floor accompanied by a fast-moving apparition. Yep. The giggle ghost? The giggle ghost. Showers and sinks run on their own. Curtains flutter. Someone had their TV turn on by itself, followed by the volume going up all the way. That's obnoxious and I hate it. Yep. Most of this type of activity is said to happen at night, normally between like midnight and 3 a.m. Last call for apparitions. Exactly. All the murder victims are said to be seen, um, but most frequently seen is the 11-year-old prostitute who was drowned in the bathtub Mm. by the cardinal. People report the sounds of stomping in unoccupied rooms and the sounds of clinking glasses coming from nowhere. Hmm. Lots of people report hearing a knock at their door in the middle of the night and the door just opened by itself despite (gasps) being locked. No. Yep. mm -mm. (laughs) Yeah. No. (laughs) I also found a video of moving shadows in a completely unoccupied room that was kind of creepy and there was also some sort of ghostly outline in the video as well. Yeah, it was, it was... I'm not staying here. It was not. I probably wouldn't either. I would like to get some sandwiches here, though. Yeah, I'm sure they have good, you know, dining. I mean, the Picante no girls can bring in your, your food. No chicken sandwiches. No chicken. No chicken. All right. Well, I mean, that's long gone now. The coops are gone. Well, I mean, I'll go to Starbucks, get an Americano, and then... No chicken! I don't even know if they still have the Starbucks or not, but... 
We'll find out when we go there. With all these strange reports and overwhelmingly insane history of this place, there's no wonder it's known as Rhode Island's most haunted hotel. And it's been the inspiration for both the Overlook Hotel from The Shining, along with its main inspiration, the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, of course, mm-hmm. as well as the inspiration for the Bates Motel in Robert Block's Psycho. Really? Yeah. Huh. The hotel has also been featured in a 2004 movie called The Last Shot, which I've never heard of. The 2007 movie 27 Dresses. Which is also a horror movie. No. <laughs> well, it's got <laughs> Catherine Heigl, so you know. Um, a Showtime show called Brotherhood, also something I've never heard of. And it's also featured in the book The Devil Wears Prada by Lauren Weisberger, who's from Scranton, Pennsylvania, by the way. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah. So that's my story for the week. Um, The sources I used were golocalprov.com, Wikipedia, of course, New England Historical Society, Amy's Crypt, Brown Daily Herald, New York Times. I gave up my boycott because I needed the info and it didn't ask me to pay this time. So, you know, (laughs) only in your state and TripAdvisor. Oh, and YouTube, too, of course, because yeah. I watched a few videos. Um, at first, I was like, ooh, this hotel sounds amazing and wacky and crazy. And then like, you got to the part of, like, and this is what happens when you stay there. And I'm like, no, I don't. Mm-mm. Exactly. I don't know that I could deal with it. Actually, it was all, like, the murders and death by, you know, people who are supposed to be trusted protectors. Exactly. Yeah, there was a lot that of cops. That turned me and, off first. But yeah. I was like, well, you know, it was a different time. I might, no. It seems to be the place that if you are a cop or a politician, you will go there to commit your crimes. Mm-mm. It does remind me a lot of the hotel whatever that we can't think of the name of. Oh, man. It's going to bother me. That's going to bother me, too. I know it. and Until it's... we find it. Because it's not the Hotel Cortez, because that's the name on that. But, yeah, you Google. It's called the Stay on Main now. Ces- Cecil. The Cecil Ces- Hotel. That's it. Yes. Yep. It reminds you of the Cecil Hotel. Yes. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I definitely can understand why they would remind you of the Cecil Hotel because it has that same sort of creepy, murdery, rapey vibe. But also decadent Art Deco vibe. Yeah, that too. Like, uh, wow, that that's a good haunted hotel. Yeah. Sorry, I don't. Listeners, if anyone's ever stayed there, please write to us because I am so curious. Even if it was, like, whatever, a normal stay, you didn't have anything odd happen, I'm just curious to get your take on the place. Everyone says the beds are incredibly comfy. That was one of the things I found on TripAdvisor. I didn't put that in my notes because it didn't really deal with anything supernatural. I mean, but... I guess that's something. Yeah. <laughs> you, can't, you won't be able to get out of this bed because there'll be something sitting on your chest, but you'll be comfy. But you'll be really comfy, so you won't want to move anyway. Mm. Ugh, I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of that story gave me, like, goosebumps. Mm-mm. It's, yeah, this was a very creepy one. When I read the one, like, um, blurb about it where it was like, sex, Satanism, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, all right, I'll, I'll click on this link. Tell me more. Click. <laughs> well, I enjoyed that, Eden. Thank you. You're very welcome. I enjoyed researching it, except for the fact that I had to do it in a rush, and then the cat wouldn't leave me alone and kept walking on the keyboard. It's okay. Yeah. He's, he's learning. He's still a kitty. He's just a baby. Baby. Well, if you'd liked our stories today, please feel free to drop us a line at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. Also, please like and review and subscribe to our podcast because we're going to come at you every single week. And anytime you review it, it helps other folks find our podcast as well. So we always appreciate that. Um, We would like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro songs. You can find us on Facebook and uh, Instagram at 
Roadside Horror Show and Twitter at Roadside Horror. Oh, you can visit our website too. Don't yeah. forget about that at um, roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. We post all kinds of fun stuff on our website. When we remember to. When we remember to. <laughs> Images coming soon, gang. All right, well, until we talk again next yeah. week, we visit a new state. I think we're heading to... Massachusetts. Ah, Massachusetts. I've got a pretty good one for Massachusetts, as long as it pans out when I research it. All right, I hope it does, because I'm excited. It'll be fun, I promise. All right, gang, until then... Creep on, creeping creeping on. on.